Good morning. Wow, thank you for being here today. Happy 2020. It's a brand new year. Um, I've heard this morning already kind of the joke expressed that we woke up in 2020 and our vision was not 2020. <laughs> Some of you held your breath and you kind of waited. I'm the person that needs to wear my glasses, but doesn't always happen with me. And I don't do contact lenses. So like, if you see me without the glasses, just assume that my vision is impaired. Um, it's not just because I decided to uh, go contact lenses that day. I cannot touch my own eyeballs. Um, and I am the, uh, like, like the, the willing to admit it adult man who if I were going to have to put eye drops in my eyes, I literally lay on the couch and have a panic attack while my wife plays target practice and says, hold still, hold still, put me in such a baby! Because I can't, I just can't. It's not, it's not even as a realm of possibility for me. So this is, this is what you get. I'm learning a little bit about vision as we explore this series called Finding Your Focus. Um, like, uh, such as, um, two parts of your eye are really responsible for making sure that we can focus. Um, the cornea and then the lens. Let's talk about the lens, because the lens is um, easier to say and kind of describe. Basically, um, there's muscles around it. And, and I love learning this, that there's these muscles uh, around our lens that help it um, get like squattier and shorter and fatter. Um, definitely not my goal for 2020. But then also just kind of elongate it, make it a little thinner. That would be awesome. Like, what if we could get taller this year? That would be fantastic. So, like, they want and, and that, when it's like short and squatty, that's used to like see things that are close up. When it's elongated, that's used for your eye to focus on things that are really, really, really far away. And I've learned something this past year because I went for my annual routine eye exam, and I had recently, in the past couple of years, teetered over that edge of 40. When I notice people doing this number, you've seen it before, <laughs> like back and forth. And so I asked my doctor, I was like, "So is my vision changing?" Because like I'm feeling the need to do some of that. He says, no, your vision, your prescription, your, your numbers don't change, but your muscles get weaker. And I was like, oh, well, I think we got your I get it now. Like they, they just begin to weaken. And so getting squatty when they need to get squatty and getting really long when they need to get long, it just takes longer. Like getting up in the morning, getting out of a chair, getting off the floor where you're going to play with your kids, like stand up, like all the things just take longer. And there are no, like, very few college students in the room today. They're all making their way back because next semester starts this week. I would not be saying any of these things if they were because just be embarrassed. And I don't want to scare them to let them know what's coming because it happens. You know that part of being in the doctor's office where they're like, hey, tell me which one's clear. Is it A or is it B? Is it A or is it B? And most of the time, it's so good. They all look the same. Like, I don't even know which one. And I feel like I'm getting it wrong. And if you are relying on me to know what better, then clearly there's a problem. And somehow or another, putting these on um, makes it easier to see. And when we look at our lives, when we look at our, our vision, um, it, it's not just our, our vision to be able to see the things around us and, and, and pick out the colors and, and understand, like, what's going on. It's not just the vision. But it's the ability to focus on what you see that matters. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the start of a brand new year for us. It, it's, not just, it's not just casting a vision and knowing what's in front of you and knowing what your goals are and being able to pace yourself as you strive to reach them and to reorient and to reset your life. It's whether or not you can focus on what matters. That's A, going to help you accomplish any of those 
goals or resolutions or whatever you want to call them at the start of a brand new year, but ultimately, they're going to help you achieve anything that God's put in front of you in your life. Focus really, really, really matters for us. So the passage of Scripture that Hollis read for us just a few minutes ago is really interesting because in Scripture, it's literally the only past nativity story. It's the only childhood story that we have in Scripture of Jesus' life before he gets 30 and moves on ground running in ministry. And so scholars throughout the years, and historians throughout the years, and really decades of people have all pondered and wondered why in the world we don't know more about Jesus. Why don't we know more about his childhood? Why don't we know more about when he learned to read and write and tie his shoes? I don't know if they had laces back then. Like, would he learn to do any of the things that he would have learned how to do, knowing that his father, we call him the carpenter, was less likely a stonemason? Like, when did he learn that trade? When did he learn what it meant to be a part of the family? When did he learn the geography of the area? Like, what's going on in Jesus' life? And what were the experiences that he had? Did he play ball with his friends outside? Did he go outside and um, milk cattle? Like, what are the stories of other um, apocryphal books for us, books that aren't in our Protestant canon? They've got some of those stories. So you can go to, like, you know, the gospel of so-and-so or this and that or the Aramaic text, and you can start reading these crazy stories about Jesus. Like, apparently some legend says that one time in life he went to this tailor's house and he turned all of the fabrics um, one color. And the guy just cursed Jesus and couldn't, this like a childhood plan. couldn't believe that Jesus would do that in person. And he said, you tell me what color you want these to be and I'll turn that color with these. But like, basically just doing I dream dream style magic tricks for people. Like, did that happen? Some legend says that it did. Um, or maybe some kid dropped dead and the family got mad and they brought the kid back alive and the family was really rude. There's these crazy stories in Scripture about this. And what stands to reason, and, and what most theologians have arrived at, is that the reason that this one is included is because it's the only one with any kind of accuracy that we can verify is true. And it's not the most exciting. And it's not the most miraculous. And it's certainly not as dramatic as going into somebody's house and turning all the fabric one color and then daring to guess the color that you turn. I mean, that's certainly more interesting for people like us. But yet this one is included. Why? Because it actually happened. And, and we can verify that description. It's the only one that's included because it's the only one that we can verify. I mean, why in the world didn't the Gospels include more stories about Jesus? More like great little childhood memories, the kind of things that I like keep underlocking the ones that I use as sermon illustrations about my kids sometimes. They ask me at some point, Dad, are you telling the story about one of us in church today? Well, it depends on how you behave on the way there. <laughs> sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But those kinds of stories, the ones that you just keep, the ones that you recall, the ones that you tell at family gatherings, the ones that I've got in my back pocket that are really embarrassing that I might pull out on, say, like a rehearsal dinner day. Like those are, hey, let me make a toast to the happy couple. By the way, did you know that we know said that she did and said this. Like, there might be those kind of moments. We don't have those for Jesus. And it's because the gospel's want to focus. Not get sidetracked between the parts of the story that didn't matter as much as the parts that do. My, one of my heroes in ministry is a guy named Reggie Warner who was in Atlanta and, and has started a curriculum for kids ministry called 252 Basics based on Luke chapter 2 verse 52. And he says that all scripture is equally inspired by God. But not all scripture is equally important for us. 
that's true because there's some verses that just stand out more don't believe me. Ask Jesus, who was asked by a teacher of the law to identify which parts of Scripture were most important, and he readily gave an answer. So you and I can too. What's the most important part of the Word of God? Uh, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, so on. That matters more than other verses according to Jesus. He even gave us a second as well as love your neighbor as yourself. And so apparently, the words that are in this book, the words that are contained, as opposed to the ones that are left out, the ones that help us focus in on what matters. So this entire book of January, this entire series, we're going to be zeroing in on one verse that I would say is a pretty important verse, not the most important verse, because Jesus didn't say it was the most important verse. In fact, he was living all this story, but in his childhood, he learned that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. And I want to land on just the past last couple of verses of that story of Jesus, the boy Jesus, like living it up in the temple and being there with his family on holiday when everybody leaves and then he stays behind. And then you get to this point in the story where the, the parents begin to ask. They travel in these entourages, these big, big extended family units. So there would have been like younger siblings of Jesus. Because you know Mary and Joseph went on to have other kids. And there would have been like aunts and uncles and cousins and neighbors and friends all making the pilgrimage together. And when they started their journey back, the assumption would have been that 12-year-old Jesus. Because, you know, you let your kids have a little bit more of a leash when they get 12 years old sometimes. Ours are 13, 12, and 7. And we leave the 13, 12-year-old home alone without us. To fend for the second adults, and there are moments we get this across. Simon's not being a good listener, but we kind of leave the words. They weren't like on lock and key, Jesus, tiny little baby named Timothy, pushing him in a baby stroller on the way to Jerusalem. He was running around with the rest of the family. And so the assumption, don't like call DSS and report Mary, the assumption could have easily been, whoa, he's just walking with another family. Oh, Jesus is just playing with his friends. Oh, he's just with Aunt So and so or Cousin John. Who knows where he could have been at this moment, but the assumption would have been safe that he was on the journey back with them home. But then they found out that it wasn't. <coughs> so when his parents, they entered in the temple, they finally found in verse 47, everyone the people were crazy amazed. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Well, wow, here he is. He's in the temple. All the other places we looked, he wasn't there. Here he is. They were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And I look for all kinds of Bible translations that would say a different word than anxiety in this moment. Because anxiety doesn't really say to us in this year, 2020, exactly what it said in this moment. It literally means it meant in pain. She was in pain looking for her son. And this has never happened to us, not on wood. I don't remember if it did happen to us. Someone would remind me because I've completely blocked it out of my memory. We've never lost a child. But boy, if we did, it wouldn't be a lie. It would be an outright pain until we found him. Like, where are you playing? Where did you go? Like, where did, like, what happened? That's a painful experience. I can't imagine, like, being in Walmart or the Target or the Disney World and not being able to your child, like running around with like so Mary would have very clearly been in pain. Why do you treat us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously, like it's it's painstaking, tears are falling, searching for you. Casually Jesus responded. And sometimes we look at this and say, is Jesus coming? No, because it's Jesus. It says, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But I didn't understand what he was saying to and they went down to Nazareth, and Jesus was obedient to them. He's going to treasure all these things in her heart. It says that multiple times in Scripture. She treasured these things in her heart. These are just moments that a mom will remember. So can you imagine being a mother of Jesus? And the way that those moments would have been special. And it says that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor 
I've often wondered, where did they go first? Was it the playground? Like, was there a playground for just long? Was it a play place? Was it a clown with a Chipotle ladder? And like, it's not the top of the spirit. And they're like, ow. Where were they looking for teeth next? Was it, was it like the little swimming pool? Was it like the YMCA? Would it have had YMCA back there? But like, where, where are those teeth? Was it the bakery? Like, if you can't find me, you need to check Starbucks and um, Target and Savage and ice cream. Like, I don't know. Like, there's some places around town that would be, like, don't look for me like at Pike Stadium or the Predators game. I'm not gonna find, like, but you find me somewhere. Look for me at the most obvious places. What were the obvious places that they looked? And, and why was the temple kind of last on their list? We don't know. This is in the worship guide this morning. You picked up a program when you came in. If you like to jot down things and fill in blanks, you can kind of follow along. We don't know that much about Jesus' childhood. Because the gospel writers are intently taking us on that journey, like pedal to the metal. They want to get us to the good stuff. We're at 30 years old. Public ministry began. Crazy miracles started. Incredible teachings began. And ultimately, the road to the cross was established. We've got to go from Christmas to Easter in just a couple of months, friends. So let's get to the good stuff. So, so, so the gospel writers are, are focusing in on what matters. But on the way, we get this wonderful time passage of childhood. We don't know that much about Jesus' childhood. Really just a song of story. Christmas nativity in this. But you and I can, in our lives, mimic his growth. We can, we can mimic the growth of Jesus. And, and we immediately want to ask ourselves, well, there's no way. Because, you know, we, we understand, or we think we understand, we teeter on the edge and understand the idea, well, he's fully God and fully man. And we can't comprehend what that means to be like 100% both. And so it, we just kind of reconcile the fact that, okay, well, Jesus was really God's son, but he was also like really a human. And that's the age-old debate that's gone on since Scripture. The early church was debating whether or not he could be fully God and fully man. There were a group of people that denied the fact that he could be fully God. There were a group of people that denied the fact that he could be fully man. There were a group of people that decided that he really couldn't be one or the other. He couldn't be spirit because, you know, when some spirit is evil and that's bad, he definitely couldn't be matter because all matters that. So all of a sudden, they just believed that Jesus didn't need footprints when he walked because he wasn't a real human being. Like, that was a theology that was being debated in the life of the early church. So this idea of people being able to understand what it means to be fully God and fully human at the same time, we're not going to solve that completely in our day and generation because if somebody could solve that completely with our finite minds in their day and their generation, it would have already been done long before we were and it wouldn't be something we're talking about today. But we understand that this Jesus, this 12-year-old boy Jesus, that little tiny baby infant Jesus, that probably two-year-old, like the wise men came and brought him birthday presents, Jesus, this 30-year-old Jesus who's walking around with his disciples and calling him to come and follow him, that all the way through life, that Jesus was somehow, in an estimation that's beyond our comprehension, fully God, like completely creator of the known universe, probably even the unknown. And also... In this body, a human man. And, and so we look at this Jesus who grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We're thinking to ourselves, okay, I get the idea of growing in stature. And we'll come to that next week and what it means for us in the life of the goals that we set and the focus that we have. Because, well, he started out as a baby. She certainly didn't, you know, lay a 180-pound, you know, hairy man into a manger. So he definitely started out like this. 
And we can say with certainty that they didn't crucify an infant. So there was a growth in stature along the way. He ate food. It was calories. His body processed. Went through puberty. And this little tiny baby that we celebrated just a few weeks ago somehow became a man that we continue to follow today. So we get the growing in stature. How did he grow in Did he not already know everything that was to be known? Paul explained it to us in Philippians chapter 2. Saying to us that even though he was fully God, he emptied himself. He kind of set some of that on a shelf, determined to come back to it later. We've been purging things at our house. Like, y'all need to go to the Goodwill if you like old stuff, because we just dropped off a bunch. You know, like, there's a bit of purging and throwing down, maybe a couple trips to the dump. Like, it's just a good time to really purge and get rid of some things. And, and one of those things that you do is you, you, you pick something up and you look at it and you say, does this spark joy? No, we're not working on it. Like, does this, this something I would use? Like, is it something that we're actually going to pick up and touch and use and feel? And is it going to bring us value again? Because if it's not, if it's been sitting there for 18 years and we haven't looked at it, touched it, needed it, used it, remembered it, and it will probably sit there another 18 months when we haven't looked at it, touched it, needed it, remembered it, then we can safely go ahead and get rid of it and discard it now. I love the idea of, of Jesus being able to look at. Hmm, here's my omniscience. Here's my omnipotence. Know everything. I can do everything. Here's my omnipresence. I can be anywhere. And, and I'm not going to throw them away. I'm not going to give them to somebody else. I'm not going to donate them to the local charity. But I'm going to put them right over here on this shelf. Because I'm going to need them again later. But right now, I'm going to go be human for a little bit. Which means that Mary, this, this girl that was picked to birth a baby, and Joseph, this, this father that was chosen to raise a son, they had to teach him words. And they had to hold his little fingers when he learned how to walk. And they had to tell him about the roads in town that you go down and the roads in town that you don't. And they had to tell him that the fire was hot. And they had to teach him how to read and how to write. And they had to tell him um, about the old man that lived in like they had to teach him about life. So Jesus grew. Having having left that part of himself that was omniscient, he literally grew as a human. Ultimate divinity. To me, it, 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 it meant that Jesus already possessed and always possessed or had access to. Complete, total, special revelation. Theologians give us a difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is, is knowledge of God that anybody out there in the world can just go out and observe and say, okay, well, there's nature, and I'm just going to believe in creation that somebody somewhere made this. There are creationists out there who are not Christians, who somehow believe that there's a God, a higher power, a creator who made the world, and they can just observe that, oh, everything that we've seen, or observe how the world works, or observe relationships and action, or observe and, and, and kind of edify this quality of love and patience and, and good characteristics. There's a general revelation that everybody on the planet, whether they choose to accept or not, has access to. But there's a, a special revelation, an actual knowledge of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who, who, who went to a cross on our behalf to take God's wrath poured out on our sin to reconcile us back to a Father, there's a, a special revelation that goes beyond that. There's a special understanding that God begins to give to us. 
that, that we arrive at and we receive this special revelation. If you're a person in the room and you call yourself a Christ follower and you live that out in your daily life and you came to a point in your human existence where you recognize, oh, holy cow, and I need God to forgive me because I don't want to think of what the alternative is of spending my entire life and all of my eternity apart from him. So somehow the Holy Spirit of God sparked something in you that inspired repentance from you that helped you become a follower of Jesus. A special revelation. And when God springs that up, when he makes that happen, <coughs> we celebrate that. Beyond that special revelation, it's, it's understanding of how every single part of this works. And we study this because we want to know how every single part of this works. And we want to know how every single part of all of this works. And that only happens when God reveals it to us. We need the God of this universe to allow us to know his truth. We need the God of this universe to allow us to receive his special truth. Well, understanding Jesus and his divinity, the fact that he was fully God, means that he always had access to it. He always owned it. It was always his. And yet somehow, to embrace humanity and become one of us, stuck it on a shelf, and okay, it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. I'm going to endure a lot. He never hit 40, so I don't know if his vision failed. But, you know, he went through some stuff, y'all. Put it over here and not pick it up for a while. His divinity meant he always had. So I, I have a hard time understanding why always. Three years old, didn't know he created the world. Always had access to it. At 15, did you remember what it felt like to form an island? It's always there. It's always present. But yeah, put it on the shelf so you become human. Divinity that you always had access to that kind of special revelation. Always. Never had to have anybody reveal it to him or release it to him. That's why people marvel at what he did. But it's humanity. It's next thing it is. Did mean that he acquired wisdom along the way in the same way that you and I can today. The writer of Hebrews, we debate who that is. Some people want to believe it's Paul, some people want to believe that it's not Paul. At the end of the day, it's only that, it's in there, and so we read it and we like it. It says this in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 9. It does a really good job explaining this. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, Okay, got 33 years that we carve out of humanity where the stuff is on the shelf and he's living it out like us. Okay, during that time of life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions. Pray. With fervent cries and tears to the ones who could save one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience. Basically, that means God though he was, he still learned obedience from what he suffered. And that doesn't necessarily mean what he suffered on the cross, but ultimately what he did in life, and let's just be honest, what he suffered as somebody who put his divinity on the shelf and came out to be one of us. Like, it's just hard being human. So everything that he endured, everything that he experienced, 
everything that he walked through, everything that he went through in life, all of that together somehow helped him learn obedience. And once made perfect, that's complete. Once salvation was complete, once the cross was over, once that earthly body was done, cool, so glad to be done with this. I'm ready to pick this back up again. Look at me now, friends. Once this was over, once the sacrifice was made, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Learning obedience and all who obey him, Jesus learned obedience and then we learned obedience along the way. Same Greek word, and it's a fantastic one. It's hubakao. And it means to hearken, to listen. This is one of those rare moments in Scripture that we get a glimpse of what really happened in history. And it's beautiful for nerds like me. Because a lot of scholars today are starting to believe that what we read in the Greek New Testament that we assume was always Greek, particularly these Gospels, was originally Hebrew. And we're reading translation Greek. Y'all have friends in other countries. You follow on Instagram. Because of the work of Justice and Mercy International, Justice and Mercy International, like love for that organization right here. There's a lot of friends who are international in Brazil and Moldova. And I love their Instagram posts because they're posting in a language that is not mine. But at the bottom, you click this little button that says C translation. Y'all know when you click C translation? It's the weirdest messed up English grammar I've ever seen sometimes. It's just bizarre. Like when we take their language, which is beautiful and makes perfect sense, and translate it into English, the translation is somehow off. We're reading not normal, everyday spoken Greek. It's translation Greek. It's coming from the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, there's only one word for here. There's only one word for obey. You know, the exact same word because to the good God-fearing Jew who lived in the time of Deuteronomy when they pronounced their most important confession of faith, the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They didn't just hear the word hear, they heard the word hear and obey because they were the same word. In fact, in that culture, if you heard something but didn't obey something, it meant you didn't hear it, so we need to repeat it. We're the ones who get that off. We're the ones who have a concept of something going in one ear and out the other. Oh, I heard it, but I just chose not to do it. If you choose not to do it, then that means you did not hear it. And so we're looking at this word, not Shema from the Old Testament Hebrew, but it's translation into from New Testament Greek, and we're reading it here, that it's not just obey, it's So somehow or another, in this passage, that Jesus, who learned obedience from what he suffered, he heard the word of God, and he obeyed the word of God, he became the source of eternal salvation for all of us who hear and obey, who receive special revelation that tells us who God is and inspires us to obey him with our very lives. Amen. That Jesus grew in his wisdom. Just the lens of your eye. How much you can flatten it out 
so that you can see things farther away. Prokopta is, is to grow, and it literally means to lengthen out a hammer, to go forward, to advance, to proceed, to increase. It means that Jesus increased in wisdom. He was increasing along the way, always learning. Increased in stature, increased in favor with God and with him. You know, as a dad, that sometimes, we parents say this all the time, oh, you're getting too big. And we kind of hate to watch our kids grow up and get older. At the same time, we love watching them learn new things. It's like, we're just an oxymoron all the time. Like, we like to speak out of both sides of our mouth. It's, 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 it's hard watching them grow up. But it's beautiful watching them learn and grow. I kind of wanted to land a plane this morning and ask you where you need wisdom. And what do you need to learn this year? Like maybe you have this idea that, okay, it's 2020. I'm going to learn the language. Or I'm going to learn how to, I don't know, build a boat. I mean, or sail. I think it's some kind of crazy like skill that you've always wanted to acquire or knowledge that you've always wanted to have, and, and that's fantastic, but maybe beyond just where you need knowledge of something, but where do you need wisdom about life? Where do you need wisdom? I'll tell you. It starts with recognizing your place. That you're not the source of wisdom. You're not the source of truth. You don't get to pick your own path. No matter what else seems to us. And we love that movie. It's a great, like it's a fun, bunch of animated things happening in the world of Disney. I'll just tell you, there's really not anything more humanist out there right now. Find yourself, be yourself, do yourself. <coughs> it's great and wonderful when we get some kind of outcome, but I, I'm going to be better following this. I, I'm going to be better following himself, not myself. Oh, what a disaster. And so we look at this. With right understanding, and we know that Scripture says in Proverbs 9 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not fear like terror or like horror movies or like man jumping out behind the bushes and trying to scare you. It's fear like reverence, awe, respect, place. Understanding that He is here and I'm way, way, way everything. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the whole is understanding. Not only about what stuff is, how it works. And so our goal this year is to somehow focus enough on this gospel and this truth that we increase in wisdom. So how will you this year pursue that increase? How you approach it, it, it is ultimately how to do it. Around the temple. Even there today, the Temple Mount in Israel, there is um, a picture of the Southern Steps. I took you, I took one from the Nekite and Nez. It's this beautiful picture of these steps leading up to the Temple Mount. And this area is, is closed off today, but you can see this outline of, of what would have been an opening in the wall. And in Jesus' day, that would have been a full on gate. People would have walked up these seven steps towards the mountain that the temple was on in order to offer their worship, in order to bring their praise, in order to, to meet their family members, in order to gather together as, as followers of God. They would have 
all these psalms in the Old Testament called the Psalms of Ascent because they were poems and songs that they recited and sung on the way up the steps leading into the temple. And so we, we gathered there on a trip to Israel this fall. And so here I, I was given an opportunity just to kind of go have some moments of quiet. So I, I went back to the Psalms of Ascent and just kind of read them out loud. Imagine them being sung to a tune. I went up each step. Psalm 128 is one of those psalms of ascent. It says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who know his place, who, who know that he's in charge and not enough. Blessed are all who fear the Lord and who walk in obedience to him. What does it mean to walk in obedience? Proverbs 4 says, I've directed you in the way of wisdom. I've led you up my paths. To walk in obedience, to hear from God and obey what he says, is to pursue wisdom. So if we're going to increase in wisdom this year, we will increase in obedience. Like you can't have one without the other. You can't increase in wisdom in your life and then decrease in the level of obedience that you offer to God. Like it's, it's a both and. As wisdom goes up, obedience goes up. As obedience goes up, it's because wisdom went up first. Like there's going to be an increase on both sides. So to pursue wisdom in your life is to place yourself in a position of submission to God. So the first and primary step of saying, I want more wisdom this year. I want to know things. I want to understand things. I've got to submit to it. If you want to know how to speak Portuguese, you got to get a little CD and listen to it. you got to play it every day and do what it says. When the lady on the CD says, say this word. you got to say that word. Well, when the great God of this universe says, do this thing, you got to do this thing. That's to increase in wisdom. We're not going to just puff up with knowledge. We're going to live lives of submission that literally follow Jesus. And I kind of think it all goes back to what he did. If we're going to pursue wisdom, we probably kind of have to be in the right place for it. Where is he going to go again? He's in the temple. You know, Jews today who don't have access to that now gather a couple of different places. One is this, this way of go to, you literally see them bring their faces up against him. <clears throat> prayers, blessings, and petitions because they're begging God to give them back that voice. You just see little notes like pushed into the crack of these ancient old bricks. But then the other place, because it's been excavated over the last four or five decades, is these southern steps. Because they know that their ancestors long, long, long ago walked those paths up those stairs into that place. So to find broken wisdom, where are we going to find it this year? Your growth and wisdom is going to increase your obedience. Somehow I also know that your growth and wisdom is going to increase your proximity to other believers in the church. Like we can look for you at the Target or the Starbucks or the Franklin Juice Company. Or we can look for you here in this place. Not just the first Sunday of the year, but you know, it's like a great time to make a new resolution to participate in one church, but maybe the 15th Sunday of the year. 
find you in a position of reverent submission, opening up this word, writing down questions, and seeking God for answers. I hope so. Because to increase in wisdom, is, the byproduct is going to be obedience. But to increase in that wisdom, I think it also starts with not just your position in the place before God, but your proximity to other believers. Not just your proximity, but not just the, the amount of time that we're spending together. The amount of time that we're spending together doing this. This week I had the privilege of going with a buddy of mine to the Dahl basketball game. Showed up for the men's game on Tuesday or Thursday night. But this break is just running together. Of course, that Belmont basketball game is you get the best national anthems ever <laughs> because it's a bunch of music kids singing the song, whatever, and the girl stands up and she sings the national anthem. My kids are homeschooled, so I'm always worried that they're not going to know like, the Pledge of Allegiance or they're not going to remember the truth to submit the flag. And so I kind of grab Simon and so this little buddy, and I'm like, hey, buddy, don't, don't forget, we can do this right here. Face the flag, the girls behind us. Singing the song and we're listening to the Star Spangled Man, my buddy, he played basketball with Baker years ago. And so I asked him, I said, You guys did the national anthem at every single one of your games? He said, Oh, yeah. I said, You did the national anthem every single one of these games. I was like, I guess they did the national anthem at just about every single one. Collegiate sporting event and like big major sporting event. I'm not going to comment on any of the people that want to debate what the national anthem is. That is not what this conversation is. But I said, How many games did you guys play? See, he's like, 35 to 40 games. So wow, in the span of like three months, you heard the national anthem like 35 to 40 times? Like I probably haven't heard it 35 to 40 times in the last 10 years. I mean, I've heard it, but it's not something I'm listening to every single day. Like, oh yeah, I can't be just old after a while. I was like, yeah, absolutely. But you know, there's something about that repetition. You know, they would sing the same songs over and over and over again when they walked up the southern steps. Year after year. And, and we get together here. Some of them are new from time to time. We sing the same song over and over again. And you come here with any kind of consistency, we're going to read some of the same stories over and over and over again. Christmas, we're going to pop up, Joy to the World, guaranteed we're going to do it. We did it this year, we did it the previous year. I'm 100% guaranteed that if you come here next Christmas, sometime in the month of December, Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve, we're going to sing Joy to the World. Guaranteed. But there's something about that repetition. Reminds you of who you are and what this all means. There's wisdom in that. There's wisdom to be found there. And there's wisdom in the approach there. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend this year doing what Mary Joseph did.
so thankful that of all the of all the possible stories that could have been included in scripture. I suppose we could have learned about the first time that you skipped your knees. The first time that you got sick or poison ivy. Yeah, I don't know what it would have been like to be you as a kid. Rough housing with your friends and learning in a local school. Helping your mom and dad around the house. I'm thankful that for all of the stories that we could have, we have this one. I imagine that there were miracles happening, crazy experiences along the way. But I'm thankful that in your sovereignty and your will, you chose to give us this one. And so, Father, what I pray this year is that you would help us to move your growth. That you would help us individually, but then also collectively as a people to increase. To increase in our wisdom. Because the byproduct is going to be our obedience, our submission. We're not just going to learn more about you. We're going to accomplish more for you and in you and through you every time possible. I know I have friends in this room, God, who have some pretty serious inquiries. Some, some pretty big things in their life where they need a supernatural touch of your wisdom. And they need a measure of strength that they can't even describe in order to be obedient with the thing that you commonly do, with the thing that you know they have to do, with the person you know you want them to become. So Father, I just pray in advance for increase in our lives. And as you give increase in all of our lives, we also pray for increase in this body. That we'll see salvation spring up. People who recognize that you are the Lord, that Jesus, your Savior, that we'll see spiritual growth beyond anything that we can.